Welcome to the Yellow Balloons podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from scripture will inspire and encourage you. In this episode, we talk about what is perhaps the most well-known section of Revelation, chapter 21. In this chapter, we are given a glimpse of the new heavens and new earth. It shows us what is in store for believers, a detailed account of the age to come. God will dwell with men. Christ and his bride, the church, will come together. There will be no more evil, completing the final act of redemption and the restoration of God and his people. So we come to chapter 21 in Revelation. Chapter 21 is just amazing. It's so good. And how we have gotten this so messed up, where in the world did we get that heaven is going to be a mindless Alzheimer clinic with bad hymns piped in where there's nothing to do, floating on a cloud? So we're going to look at what is here today, and it is so exciting. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now normally when we say something has passed away, it's bad news. Usually that means we've lost a pet or we've lost a friend or a family member. But in this case, the earth we know has passed away. The heaven we know has passed away. And good riddance. This is a good thing. We're going to get a new one. Also, there was no more sea, which is an odd statement. So he saw a new heaven and a new earth, but it was remarkable to him that there's no sea on this new earth. Now, what does this mean? Well, it doesn't mean there's no more water, because if you just peek ahead to chapter 22, the very first verse, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne. So one of the central elements of this new Jerusalem we're going to be talking about is a wide river. So there's certainly running water. Presumably that running water goes somewhere and pools up. Perhaps not. Perhaps there's just a constant running in this new earth. But what seems to be the case is that there's not a predominance of water on the earth. Today's earth is covered by water. 70% water, 30% land. It's not going to be that way in the new earth. There's also another element that we've seen that the sea is used figuratively in Revelation and in Daniel. The beasts rose out of the sea. Do you remember that? And the sea was something that the harlot was hovering over or coming out of. There's definitely an idea here that the worldly system, this chaotic, unpredictable, destructive force is no longer a dominance in the new earth. And that is something we would expect. Then I, John, saw the holy city. So we're emphasizing here, I'm John, and I was there, and I saw this. Perhaps it is that this is so remarkable, you're going to have a hard time believing it if it's hearsay. No, this is First-hand evidence, I saw this with my own eyes, and I'm telling you about it. I know it's hard to believe, but I saw it. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Isn't this fascinating? Apparently, there's a prefab city that gets lowered down onto this new earth. How long have they been building on this city? Maybe a thousand years. Maybe it's under construction now. But this city is called 
a bride. He says here, prepared as a bride. But if we look over in verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So it's prepared as a bride, and it is a bride. Now this is somewhat confusing, because how can a city be a bride? I can understand how a city could be prepared as a bride. You've all been involved in weddings to some extent, haven't you? And on wedding day, where is all the focus? It's all on primping the bride, isn't it? You've got to have the dress just right. And you've got to have the makeup just right. And you have to have something blue and borrowed and all that stuff just right. So that when the doors fling open, all the women will cry. And that's the whole idea. And if you can get the groom to cry, all the better, right? And isn't that the way that works? So prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So this is something that Jesus said, I'm going, to, I'm going to make a city that's going to make everybody cry when it comes through the aisle. And that city is my bride. Now, why does that set off alarms in your mind? Who's the bride supposed to be? They're the church, right? Isn't that what we've always heard? It's the church. How can it be the city and the church? Well, let's first go back to the famous church verse. Ephesians 5:32, And in light of what we've been talking about in Revelation, and particularly last week, I think this is a fantastic connection. So 5, verse 32, he says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So what he has said before is about Christ and the church. And what did he say before? Well, he said something that's read at most Christian wedding ceremonies. Go back to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, why did Christ give himself for the church? Verse 26 answers that question. That he may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Now, why would we want to give himself in order to just cleanse something? Well... He answers that in the next verse, verse 27. That he might present her, the church, to himself, Jesus, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their wives. What Jesus wanted was a bride. And what he did to get that bride is go and give himself for the church, for us. But not just so we could be born but so that we could grow up to marry an age and be the bride that he had in mind. And so he has spent his time on us and his focus on us, giving us what? What did we learn last week? Prepares us for him. Fiery trials. We get fiery trials in this life. To the extent we don't have the fiery trials refine us pure enough, We get judgment seat of Christ. Our part in the lake of fire. That's Jesus' face, possibly. And the purpose is to burn away the wood and the hay and the stubble so that we're ready to be this bride, shining and dazzling like jewels. Because he wants to cleanse us, and not just with fire, but with the Word, washing us with the Word. I remember... When I was a 7th grader, my mom, who who was a real introverted lady, she didn't talk much. She read a lot. She prayed a lot. 
she would answer if you talked to her. She would sit and read to you all day. She would listen to you all day, which was handy for me because I'm a talkative. And I was getting into that rebellious teenager thing, being real sassy. And she only ever did this one time. And she said, sit down. You're really getting out of order here. And she picked up her Bible and started reading John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And it just felt like somebody shot me with an arrow. I never forgot that. Because she was washing me with the Word. But it was also a fiery trial. The two can be the same. Have you ever had that experience? Where your words pierce someone else. Maybe your children. Or maybe they pierced you. And the point is to get us ready for this moment when there's a bride. Well, how can the bride be a church in a city? Well, it kind of makes sense, really, when you think about it, doesn't it? Because the bride's all of us. And if it's going to be all of us, we have to have a place to have the kind of community it takes to have the kind of oneness that's necessary to be a bride. Structure determines behavior in our world. It apparently will in this world as well. And there's going to be a city that is constructed for the purpose of bringing together the kind of unity and the kind of community that brings the kind of intimacy that you get in marriage. Perhaps you live in a really cool neighborhood. Or you've been to one that you wish you could be in. It's a little hint of what that experience might be. I've spent some time in big cities. And it's always interesting to me when you talk to someone about why do you like to live here? But you'll hear people, you know, the commute's awful. The pollution's awful. The crime's awful. The taxes are awful. You hear all this whole litany of, well, then why don't you move somewhere else? Oh, the city's so fantastic. There's restaurants. Do you ever go eat there? No, no, but they're there. There's a sports team. You ever go to those games? Well, no, no, but they're they're there. You just want to belong to something. You put up with all this misery to belong to something. And then you go to someone who's very wealthy. And they love the city, but they never go to it. They they live in a gated community or an enclave, and they have their clubs. And they, they actually live in a tiny little town with all people just like them. And at the other end of the spectrum, you get the homeless people that have their little community under the bridge. But they love the city. But they've ghettoed themselves up. They don't actually love the city. They love the idea of a city. Well, this is going to be the real deal. Where it's not going to be a ghettoized city where you have to put up with a bunch of junk. It's going to be something that makes us a bride. Together. Togetherness and community. Isn't that exciting? And we're going to kind of get little hints of what it's really going to be like as we unfurl here. But keep in mind, uh, it's a place where bridehood happens. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Now this is the best news ever. This is the culmination of human history. This word dwell is the Greek word skenoo, and tabernacle is the Greek word skene. So it's a noun and a verb form of the same basic word. So better translation would be, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. Let me just show you this. I think it's worth emphasizing somewhat. This word tabernacle shows up in Luke 16, verse 9. 
This is the parable of the unrighteous steward. And at the end of the parable it says, And I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, money, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting skenoos, tabernacle, home, dwelling. Same word. It's just a place to dwell. The reason I think the translators chose the word tabernacle is because this particular application of dwelling is the dwelling of God. And you say, well, that's happened before, right, in the wilderness? No, no, not really. Exodus 40, 34 tells us what happened when they got the wilderness tabernacle prepared. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And the same thing happened with the temple. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. And in fact, they called it the Shekinah glory. That glory left the temple before the Babylonian destruction. And why did the Lord himself not dwell there? Well, for one thing, if he would have come down, everybody would have died, right? We couldn't stand that presence. But now what's happening is we can. Remember, Jesus is going to have a face that melts the old heaven and the old earth. That's going to be what his physical presence is like. We're going to see in the next chapter that his physical presence provides enough light to light up this whole place. Clearly, if we were in our current bodies, that wouldn't work. But we're going to have new bodies. Paul calls them spiritual bodies. So spiritual and physical are separate things in our world. That's paradoxical. But somehow that paradox is going to go away in some way. This light that perhaps in some segment of our life is going to be burning away wood, hay, and stubble is going to become an amazing sustenance for this beautiful bride that we become. Because remember, who is conformed to the image of Christ? Everyone who's called according to his purpose. It's just a matter of how will you be conformed? Through fiery trials on this earth? Or through having all this wood, hay, and stubble burned away. And clearly, 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 what this book is urging us to do is embrace the former. It will happen, however, which is encouraging. We talked about this last week, that God is for us. We're his bride. He just wants us to get us ready. It's a very encouraging, although daunting, prospect. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. So now God is with us. No more. Are we in a situation where we walk by faith? No, the great, three great things, faith, hope, and love. Only love remains. The love of the intimacy of a perfect marriage is still here. But not faith. You can't believe what you see. We're going to be living with God in his presence in this new city. You can't hope for what you have. If you have it, you don't hope for it. Those two things are gone. Love remains. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And good riddance, right? That's a passing away that's good riddance. What sorrows will be gone? Well, maybe the scars you took with you to heaven from your life on earth. Maybe it's the regrets from the wood, hay, and stubble you burn up. Maybe you look back and say, I did not redeem my time on earth. Well, that's going to be bad. That's going to hurt. That's going to create a suffering of loss. It's something that we're urged to avoid. But you know what? If we have it, that period's going to come to an end. And it's going to be wiped away. And then we're going to pass into a new era where those pains become lessened. Those disappointments become preparation. And we're now a bride. And we move forward into a new existence. I don't think it'll be a memory wipe, but... You know, if you think about it, you can take a painful memory 
and turn it into an important lesson. Now, you've had that happen to you, right? So something that was painful becomes actually a blessing. And I don't think it's that we lose the memory. It's that we change the perspective of it. And God's going to turn all those things into lessons. And I, I, my personal take is we're going to say, okay, I blew it. But you know what? I learned from it. And now I've got this you know, station and I'm moving on. You know, you can do that in this life too. God does that in this life. If we will. What does Philippians tell us? We're supposed to give thanks for All things, right? Except for our mess-ups, right? If we screwed up, we're not supposed to ever let that go. We're supposed to always beat ourselves up with that so that we can kind of remain some in control that we were better than that, you know, and that's really where we are. But No, no, let's give thanks and all. Thank you for showing me I'm an idiot. Thank you for showing me that I'm arrogant. Thank you for showing me that I'm, you know, stupid to trust myself. Now I know that, and I can live a different life. Yeah? But the pain goes away in time. I, that's what I've found. I, I, you know, when I've gone through my really difficult times, it usually takes, like, sometimes years from, until the pain turns into thanks, feeling-wise. Okay? But that's the position we're going to be in. And you know what? It might take a thousand years to get, for some people to get over it. You know, it might take a thousand years. You know, we've got the, the new heaven and the new earth in a thousand years, and some people are not going to be reigning during this thousand years. It's possible some people aren't reigning in this time, too. It seems to me as though, since all tears are wiped away and so forth, if they're not reigning, there's at least part of the intimacy. It's not real clear to me how this works. But again, God's not telling us in this book, here's how it works so you can game the system. He's telling us, be a faithful witness and don't fear death, and it's going to be more than worth your while. I think that's the point. And, you know, you know, it may be that during this thousand years or some period of the thousand years, we're actually get, get a chance to relive our life with God, Jesus standing by our side, pointing things out, including the thoughts that we're having. I don't know about you, but I, that was terrifying when I first thought about that. And now I've gotten to the point where, you know, that's going to be like a film day back in the sports, you know, like, ugh, I knew, I, knew I, I took a playoff, you know, and I have, but you learn from it, right? And so it's just part of, part of the process. And then that becomes experiential, and then we get to the point where we say, you know, I got what I deserve. Everything worked out. Now we've got a new life. And interestingly enough, I think this is actually the third earth. We get indications that the first earth was destroyed by Satan or some angelic war that happened. And the earth that we're on was recreated, it seems like the language says, because it was created, it was already stuffed there. It was just formless and void, remember? And then it was, it was redone. And this is like the third earth, which kind of makes sense. Everything tends to come in threes when it's completion. So this is fun for me because I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. That means we're living in Middle Earth. Right in the middle between the other two. Isn't that cool? All right. Then verse 5. Then he who sat on the throne said. Now, remember, throne shows up 41 times in Revelation. This is the 40th occurrence of throne. And all this time as we've gone through Revelation, the speakers have been angels or messengers. Sometimes Jesus. Sometimes Jesus speaks. But I haven't found a place where actually the message is coming from the person sitting on the throne. So this is a signal, I think. He said, I, John, saw the holy city. And now he says, the person sitting on the throne said. So 
boop, our ears should pork up, don't you think? And then the person sitting on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. Now, this is really startling, isn't it? Because what has been taking place since the seventh day, or the sixth day of creation? Jesus has rested. God has rested from creation. And in the beginning was God, and then he made the heavens and the earth, and then he rested. And now all that has fled away from his face, and he's going to make everything new again. This teaching will continue in the following episode. Thanks for listening to the Yellow Balloons podcast. If you want more information on adopting a God-centered perspective, visit our website at yellowballoons.net. And if you have any questions related to what you just heard, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at contact at yellowballoons.net. Thanks for listening. 